Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia, one of the people on the committee, and today I'm thrilled to be introducing the inspiring John McChrystal. John tells the story of New Zealand through maps and the explorers who made them. From early Māori and European voyages to settlers, surveyors and soldiers, John's book, Singing the Trail, unearths little-known and fascinating histories of this country contained in beautiful and extraordinary maps. And now, please enjoy John McChrystal speaking to Mike White. And um, thanks to uh, Spy Valley, whose wine we've been drinking this morning. John McChrystal is uh, a Wellington author and writer. Uh, John's written and ghostwritten over 50 books, which is a miraculous and remarkable achievement. Um, He's written about everything from social history to sport, cars to economics, and he's written lots with Gareth Morgan in his travels. Uh, John's currently uh, writing the biography or ghostwriting the biography of Joe Morgan, uh, which will be out early next year, I think. And John's also written a book about shipwrecks. I don't know if any of you are lucky enough to be able to have tickets for tomorrow's session on shipwrecks. Uh, That book's coming out in October. It's a fabulous book, and I highly recommend that to everybody. Um, But today we're talking about maps, the wonderful world of maps and the wonderful world. And in John's book, Singing the Trail, mapping the story of mapping Aotearoa New Zealand. So ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to... uh, to join me in welcoming John to Marlborough and to the Book Festival. Just to set the scene, John, I mean, it's, it's great, you know. Um, can we have the first slide, please, of the, the cover of the book so that everyone can see it? You'll see that Marlborough just makes it onto the cover of John's book, which is great. It's probably, if, if, if we'd missed off, he wouldn't have been at this book festival at all. <laughs> Can we just set the scene, John, um, with a, a little reading from the start of, of your book about what maps kind of meant to you as a kid and then as a father? Thanks, Mike. Sure. Maps mean different things to different people. For me, they've meant a range of things according to the various stages of my life. When I was a child, my brothers and I used to explore our neighbourhood, the playing fields, the stinky creek, the big subdivision, the boundaries of the farmlet from which the subdivision had been carved. We named significant features. A glade where the fetid water of the creek pooled, we named Minty Pools after our dog, a constant companion on our voyages of exploration. The clay hills of the subdivision we named the Clay Hills. James Cook, ever the prosaic namer, would have nodded in approval at that one. A thicket of woolly nightshade trees we named Chrysler Forge. Well, my brother did. I don't really know where that name came from, as it was many years since we'd owned a Valiant. We loved exploration, and we loved maps, which were the record of our explorations. The naming and the mapping were an act of possession, of laying claim to a larger world. When, in my turn, I became a parent, my days all began with me pushing my children up the hill on an arrangement of vehicles my son on a trike in front, my daughter on her trike with the front wheel hooked in the tray behind him, me pushing using a handle attached to my daughter's trike. We called this bike train. 
Every day, bike train would make its way from our gate up the road to their daycare, about one and a half kilometres distant, a mile in the old money. We had various stops along the way, the bank where wildflowers grew, where my daughter would pick up a couple and use them to decorate her handlebars. The traffic lights, where we would impatiently wait for the safe to cross buzzer. A couple of addresses where there were occasionally friendly cats. A phone box where the children would pretend to phone their grandmother to tell her about their forthcoming day, and then their destination. And in the afternoon, we'd make the same journey in reverse. After my son had graduated to primary school, I kept the same routine with my daughter. One day, she and I drew a map of our habitual route with all those points of significance marked. That map was more about memorialization than orientation. We never took it with us or, con or even consulted it, but I meant to keep it. Years have passed and I've misplaced the map or it's lost forever, but it is still printed on my heart. Thanks, John. It's, it's a lovely introduction and a lovely way to um, explain that maps aren't just what uh, we might imagine stuck on someone's wall. They can be all sorts of things. You've always had a, this fascination with maps, and, and I think probably a lot of the people in the audience have too. There, is, there some, is there some gene, some map gene that some people have that draws them to this, to lines drawn on a bit of paper? There seems to be. It they're usually visually really interesting objects, and I think that's part of it. Just the detail makes you want to know. And the thing about maps is they do come from that, that place, and as you say, it's genetically hardwired, I think, that we just want to know. We have this natural curiosity, and maps are a communication from someone who knows, or pretends to, as the case may be, uh, and ourselves. And we just have a thirst for that detail, I think, that they contain. In your case, it was aided by your father, wasn't it? Your father loved navigation. Tell us a little bit, bit about your dad and what you learned from him. Yeah, so he was a very keen yachty, and we grew up in uh, Auckland, where the Hauraki Golf, obviously, is one of the, the great cruising grounds in the world. Uh, and he just seemed to have the supernatural power to know where the heck we were and where the heck we were going and how to join those two dots. And it was all because he, he could glance at a chart and know it know in an instant everything he needed to know about where we were and what lay between us and our destination. Uh, and so I grew up fascinated with charts and how to read them and how to make them work for me too. Yeah. And when you got the chance to write a, a book or when a publisher kind of raised this idea and you leapt at it, what was your initial idea about how you would... You know, it's a huge subject. Let's, let's tell the story of maps in New Zealand. I mean, where do you start and, and, and what's the focus that you have with that? Yeah, it sort of became a question of what book was possible uh, in many ways. We, well, to give credit where it's due, it was the publisher's idea and her idea was uh, what she was describing as explorer's maps and she wanted the maps drawn by the early explorers, probably overland in New Zealand rather than uh, from seaward. Uh, and she imagined that the surveyors who uh, traipsed over the incredibly rugged terrain we have in this country would have had some pretty good stories about gathering the knowledge that they gathered. And the maps they drew would be a good way to visually link to these fabulous stories. And I loved that idea. Uh, the trouble is the surveyors were surveyors, and surveyors, it turns out, don't draw maps. They collect lots of numbers, and that is not as visually interesting as one might hope. 
Uh, and those numbers go back to head office where they interpret those numbers and lay them out on a paper as coordinates and thus a map is born. Uh, so it wasn't as interesting as we hoped it might be. Uh, so then the idea became, I suppose what I hoped for was the idea of New Zealand then becoming the reality of New Zealand and then being sort of coloured in and layers of significance being added over the top uh, as we brought different agendas down through time, I suppose, to what we were looking for and what information about New Zealand we were trying to convey. And I think you do, you do the, that brilliantly. I mean, the, the book is not just a book about maps. It's a wonderful uh, sort of a pop summary of, of the history of New Zealand and the settlement of New Zealand. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a fabulous read. Um, and, but, but, of course, a lot of the... Our idea of maps is actually lines drawn on paper, but the earliest maps weren't. They were stories, weren't they? Explain how the, the Polynesian explorers um, used these to navigate. Yeah, so the Polynesians were an oral culture. They didn't write things down or even draw things particularly, uh, leaving aside, I suppose, um, uh, moko, which uh, is a whole different subject of which I have no expertise. I don't know where the mapping comes into that, uh, but they were an oral culture, and most of what we know about it has been transmitted by the Euro early Europeans and their contacts with Polynesia, uh, and I suppose in particular with um, Tahiti and uh, the place where our, our very first uh, drawn map comes from, which is Ra'iatia in uh, the Tahitian group. Uh, and they used to have marae there, completely analogous to our own, but they were places of learning as well. So they were whanaunga, as we have here, uh, we had here. Uh, and there was a whole class of priest navigator who would transmit their knowledge orally to their students. And it was the relation between you, where you are, and what was going on in the skies above you. Uh, and also what was going on in the sea and amongst the birds and even the fish. Everything was a pointer uh, to where you were in relation to land masses in the vast Pacific Ocean. So they told stories because that was the way that people make stuff memorable to one another. Uh, we, we still do that. Uh, fairy tales transmit knowledge to people. Um, th there are lots of examples of how in our own culture, and by that I mean in Pākehā culture, European culture, uh, Information is transmitted through stories that make information memorable. That's how the Polynesians did it. So we had this uh, tradition of, of storytelling as a, as a way of, of, um, of describing and navigating. And then we had the Europeans kind of arriving on the scene with a completely different approach to it, which was lines drawn on paper. So tell us about Tupaya and tell us about how those two cultures and traditions kind of met and mixed and how successfully that happened. Yeah. So this is probably, for me, the most fascinating map in the entire book. Uh, it's not actually the map that Tupaya drew. Uh, it's one of two versions of, that they were copies of the map that Tupaya drew at the invitation of James Cook and his officers. Uh, Tupaya was a, he was a, freak, a historical freak in many ways. Uh, the mere fact he was there when uh, Cook uh, arrived on his voyage, first voyage into the Pacific uh, was just 
a lucky chance. Um, he'd been exiled from his own uh, homeland, which was Ra'iatea. Uh, and he was on, um, he was in the, the region of Papaiti uh, when Cook was there. Uh, they quickly worked out, and he had previously contacted Europeans when the HMS Dolphin had been there about a decade earlier. Uh, so he had had some experience in communicating with Europeans, must have picked up some of the language, but at least knew how to mediate between his own people and the Europeans. Uh, he offered himself immediately to Cook as someone who could help in what could be the tricky business of Europeans getting to know Polynesians, and that's what they used him for. And they very quickly realised that in his person they'd struck the jackpot because he was a nobleman of this class of arioi, which is the word for a navigator priest. So he had this knowledge of what was out there in the Pacific. And for Cook, whose job was basically go find, go find out what's out there in the Pacific, uh, you can't imagine a better person to have stumbled upon. Uh, so when, the, when Joseph Banks came to Cook and said, I'd like to keep this fellow as a pet, please, um, Cook said, yeah, fine, he can come with us. They were strangely dismissive of him, or Cook was at least, on the voyage. And Banks seems to have regarded him very much just as a curiosity that he could take back to Britain, uh, much like the lions and tigers and so on that certain noble friends of his had back in England. Um, he had a genuine live Polynesian who he could show off. Uh, but the sailors, funnily enough, on the endeavour knew that Tupaya was the real thing. He, at any given moment, if you said, I, Tupaya, where's your own land now then? He could point, and he was always right. He could always point at where Tahiti was. No matter how long they'd been sailing, no matter what tacking changes, of course, were involved, he always knew where Tahiti was in relation to them. So when they asked him to help them kind of draw maps... This is what we got, which, um, explain this to us, John. I mean, because you have a wonderful line there. You you say that asking Tupaya to kind of draw a map was like asking Richard Hadley to explain swing bowling using Lego. And uh, and they were just so foreign, these concepts. So explain a bit about this map and, and what it represents. Yeah, so it's baffled scholars down through the ages uh, because it doesn't look like a map of the Pacific. It's got lots of islands laid out across it, but they're in the wrong places uh, in many cases. Uh, Some of the islands we can identify. The immediate problem was, of course, language. Uh, Tupaya would rattle off these names and you would get a European scratching his head and trying to write it down. And, of course, there was always a particle attached, which is why they all begin with O, so the place of uh, in Polynesian languages. So O Tahiti is Tahiti. Uh, All of the others begin with O as well. But they're not necessarily that recognisable. Some of them are. uh, Some people have hazarded a guess. Others are a bit obscure. Because the other problem was uh, some of the names had changed, even when Tupaya was uh, relating them. And some of the names have changed since Tupaya was relating them as well. So uh, many of these place names have got no modern equivalent. Uh, Laying them out in relation to Tahiti was the next challenge. And of course, Tupai had seen the Europeans by the stage, which was halfway across the Pacific to New Zealand, looking at maps and working out where they were. Uh, Obviously, in the Pacific, there was quite a lot of blank paper at that stage, which is what he'd been invited to fill. But how do you do that when you don't really have a notion of 
Uh, north is up, east and west are on in the lateral directions and south is below you. Uh, distance was different because when you sailed a, a, a walker uh, uh, into the wind, it was going to take you a long time. Sail with the wind and you were lightning fast, much faster than the endeavour. So the outward voyage was a different distance, really, to the inward voyage, the homeward voyage, in many cases. Uh, you tended not to pick a distant destination and sail there. You tended to pick intermediate destinations and island hop. And my own best guess as to what's drawn here is that the islands are drawn in relation to one another as they would have been to someone setting out, uh, seasonally adjusted to the, to the, the winds that prevailed. So... It's a little bit like a map of the London Underground, I think, where things are laid out on lines uh, rather than everything laid out according to the projections that we're familiar with, where things are mathematically measured. And, and you know, so this is a, you know meant to be a map of the Pacific, and New Zealand Outer doesn't feature on it. Does yeah. that suggest that in uh, over the centuries? That, that contact between where Tupaya was and the, the explorers who'd come to Aotearoa had been lost, that people weren't making that return voyage, and therefore that's why New Zealand doesn't feature on this. That, that again, best guess, I suppose. Um, we do know that by the time uh, Cook arrived in New Zealand, that the ocean-going um, walker that had been used to colonise New Zealand, that technology no longer existed in New Zealand. Uh, there are stories, um, and again, stories are uh, they're impressionistic versions of history and oral cultures, but there are stories that return voyages were made, uh, especially the, the um, people from, from around the Bay of Plenty region seem to have arrived and decided that this was a bit of a hellhole and nothing grew, so they, they went back and they got Coomera and brought Coomera back to New Zealand. So there were return voyages made. And of course, we've got the stories about Kupe and uh, even Maui, I guess, if you treat him as an early explorer. It suggests there were voyages of exploration and returns, uh, and then there was the colonisation and, and the odd trading return, but then nothing. Uh, we don't know why people colonised New Zealand, uh, but it could be that uh, there was some ill feeling or, or, or massive social upheaval that meant that people from Tahiti would no longer be welcome in, in Aotearoa and vice versa. Yeah. So there's debate about whether Māori drew maps or not, um, but generally it's accepted that they use oral maps through Waiata and Chance and Karakia. Tell us a, a little bit about that, and, and that leads into the title of the book, Singing the Trail. Yes. Um, the title came from uh, an article I read by a former... Uh, cartographic curator of the Alexander Turnbull Library named Phil Barton, uh, who was writing about how an oral culture will um, will transmit the same information that a uh, a written map or a drawn map will for us. And he used that wonderful term, singing the trail. And of course, as an author writing a book and being challenged at every step of the way by the publisher to come up with a title, uh, that struck me immediately as what the book was about. Uh, and that's how an oral culture will transmit cartographic information. Uh, and someone approached me after a talk I've given on this book and said, well, that's what trampers do too. You talk about your route to the destination. Uh, if you're explaining it to someone else, you 
use landmarks and features and what have you, and you tell the story of how you get there. And of course, uh, Māori used uh, waiata and karakia and equivalent uh, kind of ritualistic chants, I suppose, to teach one another the cartographic information they needed. And one of the early European explorers, when he was asking directions from Nelson through to the West Coast, uh, sat down with an elder and was sung the trail of how to get there. And he said it was so good that as they were walking, they were recognising the landmarks that they were passing from the karakia that had been entrusted to them. The first... This is, that was Tuki's map, yep. The first map of the whole of New Zealand would be this map, yep. Tuki's map. Tell us a little bit about the unfortunate experience of Tuki and about, and perhaps explain, this doesn't look like a map of New Zealand, fair, fair to say, but explain how it is actually in, in many respects. So Tuki, who drew this map, uh, and a, um, a fellow high-born Ngāpui, uh, Ngāhuruhuru, uh, were abducted from the coast of New Zealand by uh, a vessel which had been sent over by um, Philip Sidney King, who was Commandant of Norfolk Island at the time, uh, to acquire the technology of dressing flax, which was abundant in New Zealand and could be very useful. Uh, so they, they went over, they were visited by a couple of waka which came out to them. Uh, one of them had these two chaps aboard, and they thought, these are, our, these are our men. So they invited them aboard, wined and dined them, and then set sail for Sydney and basically said, uh, you're coming with us. Uh, when they arrived, um, King discovered to his horror that they'd got the wrong people because uh, dressing flax was women's work. And these two were highly affronted when they were asked how it was done because why would we know that? So they sulked for a few days, understandably, uh, the circumstances under which they arrived was hardly going to make for an easy conversation to start with. But King, casting around for anything that he could get that might be useful out of these people, thought, ah, oh, well, I'll get them to draw a map. And he showed them maps, and then they drew for him a map of New Zealand on the floor of a, of, uh, uh, a room, and this was the copy. So it's the North Island, and you recognise features of the far north, which is where these two were from shading into basically the unknown down here. Uh, the relevant features up here, you'll notice that the areas from which they hailed uh, are drawn in great detail. Uh, over here, you've got the Hokianga, which has got big trees drawn on it. Uh, it was a major kauri resource uh, in the day. Uh, the Bay of Islands is drawn. There's even a chief named in a little picture of his, uh, uh, his photo there. Uh, there is the spirit path that runs the length of the North Island to, it's called Teri Inga, um, Te Reinga, uh, Cape Reinga there, which is the leaping off place of, of uh, souls. And this is the South Island. <laughs> and the, the writing on it says that uh, Tuki only, had never been there, but he only knew of it from uh, reports of it from the, uh, I think it's the Sudiki people, which is the Hauraki people who seem to have enjoyed a bit, bit of a monopoly over the um, Punamu trading routes uh, at the time. There is a line drawn across here, a dotted line, and I can only presume, because it's not labelled, that this is basically the, the end of um, Tuki's Orohe, or, or tribal boundary. 
and that the Sudiki people are beneath that and are probably hostile. Um, there are certain features here which he's heard reports of. There's a big lake where you can get stones that you make axes out of. Uh, there is the Marlborough Sounds are shown, and there's some feature on the west coast which shows a harbour, which is probably Little Whanganui. Uh, but all of this is obviously secondhand knowledge. And so what we're looking at here is what I call the parochial projection. So a projection is the way that you draw basically a three-dimensional object on a plane surface when you're talking maps. Uh, a parochial projection is you, you know what you know, and so you draw that in great detail, and then it shades into the unknown and the amorphous and the less well-defined as you get further away. And so that's Turkey's map. So that was, Turkey's map was from about... Uh, 1797. Yeah. yeah. Now here's a map that's... Uh, at least 200 years older than that. This is the Dothan map. And it just shows you how well understood and well drawn the rest of the world is. So we knew an awful lot about what was uh, about the rest of the world, but virtually nothing about uh, the South Pacific, that's fair to say, isn't it? Yeah. And just explain a little bit about this, this Dothan map. Because, I mean, there was this wonderful term, we knew what we knew, but the rest of it, you describe as the horror of the void yeah. because we just had no idea, so we made it up. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Uh, it seems to be a cartographical convention in Europe that if you don't know what's there, you just put something there because the map looks more authoritative. Uh, and so there was this theory that was as old as the ancient Greeks, actually, that the Earth had land masses in the north, everyone knew that, therefore it must have land masses in the south as well, otherwise it would go like that. <laughs> so it was presumed that there was, a, there was an equivalent landmass in the south uh, to make the earth symmetrical. And that's sort of the way this is drawn. Although, of course, there are infinite conspiracy theories arising from this map and its counterparts, which all date uh, to around the 16th century, the middle of the 16th century. Uh, and most of them are associated with a school of cartography uh, based at Dieppe in north northwestern France. Uh, where there was sort of a centre of cartographic excellence. Um, when you look at the various Dieppe maps, they all feed into one another because a cartographer seeing another person's map which showed something somewhere would be very reluctant to go, well, that's all wrong, unless they had information to that effect. So they would faithfully copy it. Um, it shows a landmass to the south of New Guinea, which was known at that stage. And various features of it on some of the Diet maps do really closely correspond to the northern and the western uh, coasts of Australia. And there are even little sticky outy bits that, if you squint and turn your head in the right direction, do look like bits of New the New Zealand coastline as well. They're not to scale. Uh, they show rivers where there are no rivers. They show little islets off the coast where there are no islets. Uh, so as far as you can tell, it's more likely to be guesswork than actual hard cartographic detail. But um, it's tantalising because you look at it and you can make it fit the world as we know it now. And here's another... Uh, this is the... Uh, oh, the Otilis. That's the Otilis one. Yeah. yeah. So tell us about this one. Um, because there's lots of... It crops up every now and again that New Zealand was actually visited by Spanish, Portuguese, whoever. 
tell us about this map and how it sort of debunks, goes somewhere to debunking those theories. Yeah. So, so the idea, the conventional idea, if conspiracy theories can be said to have a conventional idea, is that the Portuguese discovered New Zealand and their information, most places kept all this kind of information pretty secret, as you'd expect, because there, were strategic, there was strategic importance to knowing what was where. Uh, and also there was the small matter of all the, the filthy riches that existed in unknown lands that you could go and lay your hands on. Um, so the Portuguese were supposed to have discovered it, but then information is supposed to have leaked to the Spanish and then uh, found its way to Dieppe as well. Um, this is actually a Dutch map, uh, and it comes considerably after the Dieppe maps. And what it shows is that they didn't really have much of a clue of, as to what was below uh, New Guinea at all, because what you see there is just an impressionistic landmass which corresponds to that imaginary landmass, well, supposed landmass. And it sort of slopes down to the next known point, from south of New Guinea down to the next known point, which is uh, south of the Straits of Magellan, where land had been sighted south of the tip of South America, so they knew there was something there. And it was supposed there was this great, as it was called, terra incognita australis, the great uh, southern unknown continent. Uh, but given how poor a representation of what lay to the south of New Guinea and South America this is, you can be reasonably confident looking at it that there was no better information available to Europeans at the time, okay. I think. So the whole idea of this, this uh, great void in Terra Australis was really put to rest by Cook, uh, yeah. essentially, and, but that wasn't until a couple of hundred years later after this map was drawn. Yeah, yeah. Tasman, I guess, deserves a bit of credit for uh, chiselling out a little bit of Australia and a little bit of uh, New Zealand. Um, but... Cook was given the mission of finding out what was there for once and for all, because if there was a continent there, the British need to know about it because aforementioned filthy riches. Uh, so he was, yeah, given the job of, of making sure that the unknown uh, became the known, uh, and he did a magnificent job of it. Yeah. Because some of his predecessors, you say, the de depictions of New Zealand were works of science fiction, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cook, tell us about Cook. I mean, this. Yeah. Here's a, 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 a wonderful map that Cook did. Tell us about him, his skill as a map, uh, as a cartographer, or the people that were on board with him. Yeah, so the thing, Cook was an unlikely person to have been commanding the voyage to the Pacific that he did, and he was an unpopular choice. But he was a good choice because he'd impressed. Um, the Admiralty with his ability to make charts, uh, and he'd done that when he was knocking around North America in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, no, not Napoleonic Wars, sorry, the, the, um, the battles they were having with the French at that stage, which didn't involve Napoleon. Uh, there's been a few of them. Uh, so he charted uh, the area around um, uh, Montreal and did it to such good effect that he was uh, mentioned in dispatches, even though he was a very junior officer at the time, to the Admiralty. And when they were looking for someone to make particularly good maps in the Pacific, uh, they turned to Cook. And they completely overlooked a couple of his better connected um, uh, rivals, and needless to say, connections counted for a heap. Uh, and actually, I won't digress into this too far, but some of those connections actually are one of the biggest reasons we've got such a um, 
a strong basis for the conspiracy theories about the Portuguese discovery of New Zealand because someone, in order to discredit Cook's own discovery, said, oh, well, the Portuguese knew all this before and here's the cartographic proof. I uh, won't go into that too much. However, um, Cook was a, a brilliant cartographer and the map, we, the chart we have here uh, was one of the ones that he made on uh, his voyages around the New Zealand coast and this is Cook Strait. So this is the Marlborough Sounds. Uh, Cook loved the Marlborough Sounds because he had lots of secure, safe anchorage available to him there. And so while anchored up here in Endeavour Inlet, he did a beautiful survey of the remainder of uh, the sounds here. Um, not quite so good down, down the main coast, you'll notice. Uh, there's discontinuity here because he was too far offshore to see what happened at uh, the other end of Cloudy Bay, uh, presumably named Cloudy Bay because he couldn't see to the other end of it. Uh, no Port Underwood, you'll notice, because again, he could see the entrance to it, but he couldn't see what was going on. He was doing what's called a running survey. So he was sailing down the coast and doing a pretty impressionistic job of drawing what was down there without trying to fix the exact locations of landmarks. Uh, but really, for, for the, the job he's done here of producing a map that really closely corresponds with what our maps do today um, is quite remarkable and it fully vindicated the faith put in him by the British Admiralty. The other thing of course is that Wellington Harbour, he yep. never mapped Wellington Harbour, he never realised that there was no. a harbour there and he sailed through yep. Cook Strait, the strait that carries his name, never picked out that Wellington Harbour was there. That's right. You can tell he's a responsible cartographer because where he's not sure he'll leave a gap. And there is a gap at the entrance to Wellington Harbour there. Uh, he saw a gap, but he didn't know what was through it. And needless to say, Wellington on a bad day, occasionally we get them. Uh, when your sailing ship is at the mercy of the winds, you don't want to sail into a rocky looking bay in case there's no way out of it. Uh, so he was a prudent navigator as well. Yeah, that's the brothers up there, isn't it? Yes. Um, which most of your local people will know. He almost ran aground on the brothers, didn't he? Yes, he did. But I mean, this, yeah. doesn't this just show, it, it, it's extraordinarily difficult. You're the first person to try and map something. You're sailing virtually blind, aren't you? Feeling yeah. your way along. So in that respect, he did a remarkable job to A, map it, B, not lose his ships. Absolutely. He nearly lost his ship so many times, it's uh, yeah, frightening. Uh, in the Bay of Islands, quite a few of the landmarks there, and especially the sunken rocks, and there are plenty of them, he found by bouncing off them, really. And the closest he came, of course, was on the coast of Australia, where he ran onto the Great Barrier Reef, and there was a hole in the hull of the Endeavour uh, that they didn't realise how bad it was, because there was a head of coral stuck in it. And had that not continued to be lodged there, he would have lost his ship. But sailing, they managed to make the coast and uh, haul the ship out and repair the hole, uh, had that chunk of coral dropped out, then we wouldn't have known about Cook's discoveries in the Pacific. Yeah. So just as, was it Cook himself that was actually drawing the maps, or did he have specialist cartographers on board? How did that work? Yeah, so his senior officers were all pretty good as well. Uh, we've got charts from Pickersgill, who is, uh, I think, the sailing master, and uh, Molyneux, um, who might also have been the sailing master. I've forgotten their, their actual job descriptions, but they were, they were both very good cartographers, and we've got some of their maps as well. 
Yeah. So if we're going to apportion blame for mistakes like the Stewart Island joined on to the mainland and Banks yes. Peninsula being an island, it has to be shared amongst the yeah. offices. Although I guess that's where uh, the prudent navigator takes precedence over the cartographer. He was far enough offshore that he couldn't tell what was going on with Bank, Banks Peninsula. It's low-lying enough so that you see the highland and then beyond it you can see the other highland, but you can't necessarily see the, the low, low connecting isthmus. Um, so, yeah, he was too far off. Uh, ditto when he got to Stewart Island. They had a big debate. Uh, some of his officers believed there was probably a strait just because of what the sea was doing. Uh, Cook thought, yeah, nah, yeah, nah. So he drew it as a peninsula. Uh, and it was a, a little while later that Stewart Island became an island. And mistakes were made by people drawing those early maps, um, often tragically. I mean, the Auckland Islands and the sub-Antarctics, I don't know if any of you have been down there, south of New Zealand, unfortunately misdrawn by quite a margin, and possibly the, re- the result of that was many ships being wrecked there. Yeah. So the, um, the main route from uh, the east coast of Australia to the UK was to duck down south of New Zealand and pick up the westerly winds that go around the bottom of the globe and go around uh, Cape Horn up to the UK, and then obviously the opposite. Uh, when you're coming back the other way, you would go around Cape of, uh, Cape of Good Hope. Trouble is, when you're taking that route in a sailing ship uh, in the Southern Ocean where it's often foggy and you couldn't really reliably fix longitude unless you can see the stars or the sun, um, New Zealand was right in the way. And uh, Cook named one of the groups of islets to the south of us the Traps, uh, a subsequent navigator named another group the Snares, and that says it all, really. They were there right in the path of these ships. And to the south of them is Auckland Island. Uh, they were discovered in 1806 and very accurately reported to Admiralty by a fe- fellow named Abraham Bristow. Uh, but a subsequent person in London uh, who was drawing maps, probably relying on a sealer's information, and sealers often fudged the truth about where things were because that way people would sail off to the patch of ocean and not find an island where all them seals were. Uh, that, that information seems to have found its way onto a chart because the Auckland Islands are shown uh, 40 nautical miles north of where they actually lie. And if you're sailing in, through fog, relying on passing to the south of the Auckland Islands, your chances of running smack into the west of them uh, are greatly enhanced. And that's what a good six or seven ships did uh, in the space of 100 years. And you'll be able to hear more about that if, um, if you come to John's shipwreck session tomorrow. <laughs> the way that, that New Zealand was, was mapped was from the coast, wasn't it? First yeah. you did the coast, then you gradually moved inland. And this is um, Stokes' chart of Marlborough Sounds, and, yeah. and he was uh, responsible for mapping a large part of the... New Zealand coast, and very accurately, very intricately, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. John Lord Stokes is a really interesting fellow. Won't get into his history too much, uh, but he features in exploration in Australia and in South America as well. Uh, he probably the most boring man alive, I would think, at the time, uh, and that's why he was given this job, which was basically to sail this hideous-looking little vessel called the, um, the Acheron around the New Zealand coast, was a paddle wheel steamer in the days when steamers were pretty unusual. Uh, but it had the advantage that if the wind was against you, didn't matter. You had the paddle wheel steam thing going for you and you could go where you wanted to go regardless. 
So no matter what the weather was doing, he was able to poke into pretty much every nook and cranny on the New Zealand coastline and work out how deep it was in relation to it. And you can see that on the definition's not great, but uh, pretty much in all of these areas, you can see it's sort of fuzzy and gray. And the fuzziness is little dots. And each little dot is a number. And each little number is where someone chucked a line of lead, a line with a lead weight on it overboard, and counted the knots that ran through his fingers to work out how deep it was. And there are, count there are millions of them drawn on these charts. Uh, and it's been so meticulously done, it's just awe-inspiring, really. But by the time uh, Stokes had finished and his successor, a uh, man named Dury uh, was, um, was, uh, had, had finished his work a few years later, uh, there was no part of the New Zealand coast that wasn't well-known, well-charted, and even the, the depths sounded. And that's about what year? What are we talking about? We're talking early 1850s, about 1851 or two. And the impetus, of course, was immigrant ships were coming, and they needed to know what they were likely to run into. Talking of immigrants, so the immigrants arrive, and people draw up wonderful plans for wonderful cities, this is what Wellington was meant to be. <laughs> and this yes. is where Wellington was meant to be. Tell yes. us about um, the unfortunate experiment of Wellington Mark I. Yeah, so it's a wonderful story, the uh, establishment of Wellington, and I'll try and tell it in brief if I can. Uh, yeah, so it was the project of the New Zealand Company, as I'm sure everyone are aware, and basically they're a prototype of property developers. Uh, they had this idea that they would develop this thing they called Britannia and later came to be known as Wellington. Uh, they drew a whole lot of uh, plans like this and they stuck them in places like Adelaide and uh, Nelson and Wellington, as it, as it happens. And it was all done uh, somewhere in some smoky room in Britain. And the plan was sent out uh, along with a surveyor who was meant to buy up the land, survey up all these plots as, as shown, and then when the settlers arrived, they'd all happily settle on them. Uh, reality didn't quite match, as property developers so often find. Um, reality didn't quite fall into line with their grand plans for things. So this is the Hutt River uh, running through here. Or, frankly, Lord Cobham, who drew this plan, didn't have a clue, but it was a river. So find a river, and on its commodious banks, um, lay out this town, just so. Uh, you can imagine what the poor old surveyor, Philip Mean Smith, uh, thought when he first arrived. He laid this out pretty faithfully, or was in the process of doing it, when the, um, well, actually they were in the process of buying the land from the locals uh, when the first settlers arrived. Uh, the survey was partially complete, and people were already being settled on the blocks the first time the Hutt River flooded and swept them all out to sea again. Uh, so then they had to shift around the harbour. Yeah, and this is this is Wellington <laughs> where it is now. Yes. Um, and uh, this was, you'll see in the book where it's uh, the definition's a lot better. Each of these plots has someone's name, an immigrant's name, yep. written beside it. And what were they promised? They were promised an acre urban plot and a ten acre rural block yep. as well. Yeah. So, so this was Edward. Um, Edward Gibbon Wakefield's master plan. It was called systematic colonisation. You would give, you would sell, not give, no, nothing gets given by property developers. You would sell a one acre block of, block of townland to a settler, uh, which is where they would live. But they would also have a 10 acre block of country land, which they would own and they would get a manager on to farm. 
The manager would work for wages. Eventually, they would be, in their turn, able to buy a plot of townland with which would go the block of land which someone would come from England to manage. So it goes. There would be this chain of people getting rich off the fat of the land. Uh, the trouble, of course, you look at the plan of Wellington as laid, um, those one-acre blocks, those little square plots of land didn't quite fit. You can see there's been, an, you sort of can see, there was a really diligent effort made to make them fit, but it didn't quite work. Uh, but the big problem for the New Zealand company, wherever they went, was finding these 10-acre plots of land. Because they had 1,100 settlers initially, that was uh, uh, 11,000 acres of land, flat land, farmable, arable land, uh, that they needed to find to go with these town plots. And that's where the trouble began. Yeah. Um, this is Nelson, and explain how that deal of the one acre in town, 10 acres somewhere in the country, spills over to Marlborough and the very uh, well-known incident or the Wairau fray. Um, explain how that all happened. Yeah. So, so the man who drew this, it's a beautiful map, it really is. It's hand-coloured watercolours and what have you. Uh, it probably was the early equivalent of a property developer's uh, sales brochure. Uh, it is Nelson as they imagined it would be, and somewhere along the line they would find the 10-acre plots to go with it. And so even as the settlers were arriving and there were tents there and there were fires lit when they were coming ashore, uh, happily settling on their town blocks, some poor sap, and it was uh, Frederick Tuckett, the man who drew this, and a party of surveyors were dispatched into the hinterland to find all that arable land that must be out there somewhere. Now, the surroundings of Nelson obviously aren't that suitable. So he came, he came east and he found himself in the, the hinterland uh, of um, the Wairau River. And you can see where this is going. Uh, they met up with Ngāti Toa there. So wherever they hammered in a peg uh, on their survey, they'd wake up in the morning and it had been chucked out. And they'd go out into the field and start hammering in pegs again and they'd come back and find their tent had been burned and things like this. And so they confronted um, Te Rauparaha and said... Um, look, the fellow who runs the Cloudy Bay whaling station sold you all this land, and the answer, I don't know it in te reo, was basically, uh, no, it didn't. And so this argument went on, and eventually the government waded in and decided, uh, or the New Zealand company actually waded in with a half-hearted um, backing of the government to try and enforce the survey that was going on in the Wairau Valley, and, of course, there was the affray that happened there and lives were lost on both sides. So that was the beginning, really, of the New Zealand land wars. And the survey gangs were seen by Māori, you know, as divvying up land. And they were regarded with almost superstitious dread, weren't they? And the theodolites were seen as kind of demon spirits. Yeah, they had the, the word they attached to, it, to the tripod, which was a box with a, with a glassy eye, not unlike that, actually, um, was taipaw, which means a kind of demon, apparently. Uh, and they knew that wherever these things came, there was trouble afterwards because um, jackbooted Europeans showed up with muskets and tried to force you off your ancestral lands. So the moment a surveyor appeared, yeah, there was superstitious dread at the power that this box they carried with them held. Now... Even though New Zealand was reasonably well mapped in the, in the 19th century, some people were, were still willing to put out wonky maps like this one. Um, this is uh, 
uh, James Wilde, who, as you say, had a reputation for printing maps of new territories as soon as they were discovered, if not before. And so this was a bit of a rush job. Um, there's not much in the interiors. There's this kind of clenched buttock down somewhere <laughs> on, on the south coast. There's no Lake Taupo, is there? So what was, who was he trying to flog these off to? That's a really good question. I don't know. It, this was dedicated to um, the Honourable Thomas Spring Rice, who sounds like a takeaway dish, uh, but he was the colonial secretary at that stage for lands. Uh, so it was meant to have quite a bit of authority. And funnily enough, this, this shape of New Zealand shows up in that, uh, that chart I was alluding to earlier where uh, the Auckland Islands are out of place. So... Um, the person who drew that chart seems to have had access to only the finest shonky information out there and uh, made, made their chart of it. Uh, it. It is extraordinary that this map was, um, was printed with such authority at the time because they knew so much better. Yeah, and that was, what, about 1839 yeah. or so, wasn't it? Yes, it was. But some maps were brilliantly drawn, great uh, detail and intricacy. Um, this is Haas map of the Southern Alps. Yeah. So Julius von Haast uh, was just a visitor, really. He was a bit of a tourist, and he was enlisted uh, by the colonial government who, who heard he knew something about rocks uh, to go map the Southern Alps. Um, good luck with that. But look what he did. He, um, it is an extraordinarily accurate map of what's there in the interior, which previously, on the map we showed you previously, was blank with a bit of a smudge through the middle because they knew there were mountains there somewhere. Uh, Haast did this. And apparently he was quite fondly known by the surveyors as um, the Merry Gent because wherever they found a campsite of his, it would be littered with jam jars and bottles of alcohol and things because he used to get about with this quite large entourage of people carrying the good things in life with them. Uh, so, yeah, he, he, was, he was a remarkable figure, Haast, and... Uh, this map has got to have been one of the greatest accomplishments in our yeah, cartographic history. And here we go. Here's a map of the British Empire. And this is um, how the world was depicted if you lived in, in England, I suppose, sitting in London. Again, New Zealand right down there, bottom corner. Um, is this kind of sort of the whole idea of New Zealand, part of our ethos is putting us on the map and is, is it a response almost to this fact that we always end up bottom right-hand corner, essentially, and sometimes missed off completely? Yeah, we do get missed off a lot because you don't have to shift the frame very far before we're, we're off that frame and won't quite appear on that frame. So, yeah, that's why we, we disappear so often. But it's putting Europe basically at the centre of the map, uh, which is what the British did because the British are right there next to Europe. Uh, and you can see that everything that the British owned at the time is shaded in imperial pink. Uh, around the border of this beautiful map um, are ludicrous depictions of uh, the, the kinds of people and bounty, the aforementioned filthy riches uh, they found in these lands that they conquered. Uh, so you have a dusky native here patting the head of a kangaroo while brandishing a boomerang. Here, I think, is New Zealand, which is a pretty hard-working sort of fellow with the sleeves rolled up, leaning on a shovel. Gold miner? Uh, possibly a gold miner, but um, the, the lass next to him is holding the pelt of what I take to be a sheep. That's the only way I know that this is likely to be New Zealand depicted. Uh, there are naked people lounging around everywhere um, as, I suppose, the fevered 
imperial British imagination imagined these, these un, uncultivated lands would be. But they're all gazing adoringly at the central figure of Britannia here, uh, which is, um, I don't know, it's hilarious in its own way, but uh, there was a whole lot of violence done to the world along the way in pursuit of this vision. Now, this is a, a map, we're now in the 20th century. This map might not look much, but this is a map of Gallipoli. And I just want you to tell us a little bit about this, because it's actually a remarkable map, isn't it? This is a, a map, what's called Godley's map, from, um, fr- from the time of the Gallipoli invasion. Tell us a bit about Godley, and tell us about this map, and how it's kind of a living map. Almost. Yeah, yeah. Um, this map hails from a section of the book I called um, Places in the Heart, and it's sort of a vestigial section in the book because I imagined I'd be able to get all these great um, maps of military sites of significance in military cemeteries, and uh, I couldn't. So there's only about two or three maps in this section. Um, this one, however, survived because it is, as Mike says, such a great map. Uh, Godley's name actually appears up here. He was the commander of the... Um, the New Zealand forces uh, on the invasion of Gallipoli. This was his map, and he was probably studying it uh, on a table under canvas on the beach on, in the very first hours of the invasion while New Zealanders were bravely battling their way up the impossible terrain of Gallipoli. It's an ordinary map of uh, the Gallipoli area taken from a, um, an RAF survey uh, and then these bits have been hand-drawn in, hand-inked in, to represent the contours. And you can't see the pencil annotations that are around here, which show the locations of the ships and the landing craft. There are soundings showing how deep it is, so where a landing craft will get ashore, where it will run aground. There are arrows showing the supposed route of advance of the New Zealand forces. Uh, but there are also other pencil marks which show where new reports indicate they're being bogged down and pinned down under heavy fire. Uh, there are the known Turkish defences along here and pencilled in there are the Turkish defences as they actually found them, which were considerably more formidable. And it was looking at this map, apparently, that Godley uh, telegraphed high command and said, position impossible, big forces withdrawn, to which the answer was dig, dig, dig. And the rest, I suppose, is history. Um, early maps of New Zealand uh, uh, show the communication or the roads and the railways. Far more railways here. The railways are in blue, the, the, um, the roads are in red. This one's from, what, about 1870? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you can see very little in Marlborough. Sorry, we, we kind of came along later. Everything again, typical. Everything's up in the North Island, isn't it? Um, the the other the, the other uh, the one that side that's unfortunately gone haywire there was one of lighthouses in New Zealand and the reason that lighthouses are obviously so important because most of the communications that time as you can see that there weren't many roads or railways were by ship this map here is actually showing all the shipwrecks around New Zealand which is a remarkable amount any idea how many ships no. found around the New Zealand coast no I'm afraid I don't. Uh, I'll be speaking tomorrow as an expert in New Zealand shipwrecks, and I haven't got the foggiest how many. But there thousands, are, but, thousands, <laughs> it yeah. would be fair to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So as Mike says, uh, Marlborough, there was not much going on in the way of roads or even railway. And the reason for that is the rivers. Uh, you had to build uh, bridges, which were a significant bit of infrastructure in the day. And uh, yeah, Marlborough was slow to get them. The South Island was the economic powerhouse in those days. But again, as Mike says, communication was done by sea. So not much in the way of roads or railways. All the action was on the sea, and hence the number of shipwrecks. Yep, and this is again, this is from 1885, I think, again, virtually nothing up in Marlborough um, at that time. Other maps, oh, that was a, bit, a little bit later, this is the touring maps of New Zealand. Gradually we did kind of um, get better roads. Um, the other maps that were drawn were about those crucial things, resources, minerals, gold, those kind of things. So yep. that was important, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so maps are communications of the known. And obviously one of the things that governments particularly wanted to know is where all them filthy riches were. So they dispatch people to do geological surveys, that's what Haast was doing, uh, and report back on what they could find that was of value. And this map I loved because it's so different to all the other maps we've got. It's almost like an X-ray film of New Zealand, I think, uh, showing deposits of significant minerals, including gold, uranium, uh, minerals I hadn't even heard of, actually. Uh, and, and they're all out there somewhere in, in, in significant deposits. And this map is drawn on black card and it's used metallic ink. So it, they actually glow when you see it in the life. Uh, not so much on the screen. Okay, and the final image that we've got here, this is New Zealand from space. You say that this is a beautiful but cold map. So why, why do you think it's a map? Because there's nothing human in that, um, that image of New Zealand at all. I think the charm of maps as opposed to aerial photographs, they're beautiful to look at. They don't engage us because they're not, they don't show the human face of our, the human, they don't tell the human story of our interaction with the land we live in. And uh, I think that is borne out by this image. It's, it's cold and remote. It's a, it's a, a shape on the face of the earth that humans don't have anything uh, visibly to do with. But within that shape, it's the base for all of our adventures and lives and journeys, isn't it? It is. And so the maps that we draw that resemble this are, for me, much more engaging, I guess, than the photograph is. Yeah. Look, ladies and gentlemen, um, I hope there's some people um, who have got questions. We've got a few minutes uh, in this extended session. Like I say, we're going to run over time. That's fine. But um, if you do have questions, please just pop your hand up or just sing out and ask John. Up the back, sir. Um, I've heard about um, the technology taking more technology over the So the early bits that were drawn, I wasn't entirely sure whether they were drawn originally or using something that was the question. Yeah, so that there are, technology comes into it on two sides of it, I suppose. There's the information gathering, and then there's the, the tools by which they're depicted. And the technology of gathering uh, information uh, in the early days consisted of theodolites and sextants, and for measuring things, they actually did heave. You hear about the measurement of chain, and that was a surveyor's measure. And it consisted of, literally, a chain, which was made of iron, specific length. Each link was a specific length. And it was someone's job, the chain man's, to drag this thing around after the surveyor, and peg it out on the face of the, the earth uh, so that they could measure how many chains between two different points. Um, theodolites measure angles uh, 
and by measuring the angle you can do clever spherical tr trigonometry in order to reckon distances and altitudes. Uh, that's why we have trig stations, because trigonometry depends on those known points. Um, yeah, so that kind of technology existed. Um, the map, this kind of map, of course, as soon as we could see things from space, uh, we were doing things in new and once unimaginable ways. Uh, Western map making is all premised on the idea that you can get a bird's eye view of what's there, but it was done on the ground, sometimes from planes and things, but that came later. Previously, it had been done on the ground, and uh, it's amazing how well those pictures that were painstakingly done through measurement and maths uh, and clever drafting um, resemble these things, which are the actual bird's eye view of the Earth. Um, but, of course, satellites can carry instruments other than just cameras, and they can uh, measure all kinds of things. And a whole section of the book, which um, didn't actually end up in the book, had to do with the images that you can produce when you can remotely sense different parameters of the Earth from space. Uh, we can see fault lines on the ground. We can see the sunken parts of New Zealand. Uh, we can use computers to model what will happen when the sea rises. Uh, we can do that kind of thing. So, yeah, it, it's, that's a very good point. Um, our maps are determined not only by the way we gather the information that creates them, but also by the technology that we use to draft them and uh, represent them to people as well. Yep. Anyone else with anything uh, uh, You didn't mention some of the European people like Colenso, etc. Yep. Did he actually draw maps for it? Was he toured New Zealand extensively? Yeah, so that's what I was hoping for in the very early stages here, that uh, all of the missionaries... Uh, uh, Marsden and uh, Colenso and people like that did these enormous foot slogs uh, through New Zealand. But so far as I know, they didn't draw maps. Um, people will probably correct me on that. But um, I looked at biographies, hoping that that would steer me to cartographic material they might have done. It wasn't their job. Uh, and often they were guided by people and they probably paid less attention to the area they were passing through than perhaps they might. Uh, I had high hopes for Hefe and Brunner, who did this massive walk from uh, Nelson all the way down, in um, Brunner's case at least, uh, to basically as far as he can go south, to Jackson Bay. Uh, Hefe's map of one of their adventures survives, and it's just a squiggly line on a bit of paper. It's in, it's in, the, um, in the book, but it's the least visually in interesting map there. It's a squiggly back line on a, on a white page. Very few landmarks or whatever. Uh, but it was basically the first accurate representation of the West Coast, which was pretty dangerous to actually survey in detail from seaward. Yeah, yeah. Yes, still is. Yeah. Okay. Um, look, thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming along to this session. John will be um, at the other end of the, of the foyer signing copies of the book. It's a fabulous book, so many more images and maps and charts in it and the stories that go along with them and their fantastic stories. Um, as I say, John's got another session tomorrow talking about shipwrecks, but it is sold out, so you're probably going to have to mug someone if you want to get a ticket for that one. But can you um, join me in thanking John for coming tonight? Thank you, Mike, very much.
That was John McChrystal speaking to Mike White at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do recommend it to family and friends. Thanks for listening.